zoom, 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 say, wow, come, hey. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to set the You're session. listening to Respect You. Open it up. Say good evening and good afternoon. Like uh, say, hey. Welcome in. Come. Welcome in. For this project, we've invited UK creatives, journalists and heritage organisations to nominate an individual who's had a big impact on their creative journeys. The individuals nominated for Respect You are people who have inspired and innovated in their field. People who have demanded change and paved the way for generations to come. Their achievements will be showcased in the Museum of Colour along with portraits by the artists Grace Lee, Erin Say and Naki Nar. The Museum of Colour is a digital museum celebrating 250 years of creative achievement by people of colour. In this audio series, you will hear from the nominees themselves. My story starts in Kingston, Jamaica, 1956. And I stayed on that island until I was about eight years old and then came to to Britain, to London. And yes, I spent the rest of my childhood in, in West London, North Paddington. You're listening to the multi-talented author and broadcaster Ferdinand Dennis. Ferdinand has written and published three novels and two non-fiction books, all deal with themes of African, British and Afro-British culture. His books have often been accompanied by radio documentaries for the BBC. We began by talking about his early series for Radio 4, Journey Round My People. So in 1985, I was working for a a London-based, Nigerian-owned magazine. And um, they sent me to East and Southern Africa to report on um, the political situation and to find correspondence for the magazine. And so I entered uh, or re-entered the African continent because, of course, I'd been there before. I'd lived in West Africa from 1980 to 82. And so on this occasion, I entered, re-entered the African continent through Nairobi, then traveled to Kampala, Uganda, and uh, then back to Nairobi, then on to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, then to Lusaka in Zambia, then to Harare in Zimbabwe, and to Maputo in Mozambique. So that I was on the road for about two months uh, in the autumn of 85. And um, I parted ways with the magazine some months later. But I, along the way, as well as doing the formal reporting on political events in East and Southern Africa at the time, I kept a, a sort of diary which appeared in the back of the magazine. And this diary was, you know, about encounters with people in bars, taxi drivers, and and so on. And that. And that was bought by the BBC, by Radio 4, and became a series of five programmes called um, African Encounters. And they commissioned me, and this was an idea I put to them, to do six 15-minute talks about a journey through Britain, through Afro-Britain. That was my choice. You know, that, that I didn't want to say Black Britain, a highly problematic term at the time, and I think it probably remains so today. Um, I was very clear to myself that what I wanted to focus on was on um, primarily the African, Afro-Caribbean population in the UK. So I started on that journey in Liverpool 
went from Liverpool, I think, to Sheffield, then to Birmingham, to Bristol, and to London. Well, I think, oh, yes, I also went to Cardiff. And the series went out, and I, because my interest had always been in, you know, in, in the page, I turned the material over again into this sort of travelogue. That travelogue was Ferdinand's first published book, Behind the Front Lines, Journey into Afro-Britain, which was awarded the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize in 1988. Could you tell me a little bit about the political and social context, so the time that you were writing that book and and how it was received? So the political and social context of the the 80s, um, it was quite an exciting time. It was my first decade in the world of work. And a whole number of political forces, political trends that had pretty much characterised the post-Second World War age was coming to a, a climax. One of them was the Cold War. The other one was the anti-apartheid struggle. And also in, within Britain, um, the, the need to sort of rearrange Britain in you know, this sort of post-imperial phase that lost its colonies and so on. So this was the age of Mrs. Thatcher, of Margaret Thatcher as the Prime Minister. She came into power office in 1979. Um, I was there for a decade and you know, completely reconfigured Britain. But it was also the decade in which there were riots, the 1981 riots up and down the country, inner city riots. I wasn't in Britain at the time. I was teaching in northern Nigeria at the time. But I'd seen the forerunner to those riots in 1980 when I worked in Birmingham for a project which worked with young black offenders. And it was quite amazing. There were all these kids, um, I say kids, you know, teenagers, 18, 19, that kind of age. And they were, you know, got into trouble with police. They were all Rastafarians. They had nothing but contempt for the authorities, no regard whatsoever for the authorities. And they were pouring through the legal system. So what you had was a whole generation of kids who were more or less British-born, but they had not been able to find a place in the society. You know, there were no jobs for them. There were no jobs for an awful lot of white people as well, it has to be said, because I say this was a country that was going through a sort of post-imperial reorganization, reconfiguration uh, on the economic front. You know, many of the, in, the industries that had sustained employment in the past were failing. And so you had that economic decline in combined with racial discrimination and kids who, you know, were heavily influenced by an ideology that was coming out of Jamaica, which legitimized uh, uh, withdrawal, protests, and dreams of Zion, uh, of escape. Um, So the music was really so important in the 1970s into the 1980s, you know? I was thinking of um, Burning Spears, Slavery Days, and uh, Marcus Garvey and, and, and so on and so forth. So the kids who rioted had, had been exposed to some of this music. You know, they had been converted to, in a way, converted to, to Rastafarianism in the various blues dances and shabines and so on around. And I'd say it's, it, it carried a very radical message and it, uh, it, it touched this sort of raw nerve, you know, what this, this, this past, this hidden past that, um, they had not been taught about. 
Um, so that was part of the context. Uh, the other part of it, I say, by the late 80s, the Berlin Wall fell. So that particular struggle was played out, the, the Cold War, triumph of the West, democracy, capitalism, etc., etc. And on the back of that, the regime in South Africa was, uh, in 1990, they declared that uh, Nelson Mandela would be free. Now, it may seem quite unconnected with the kids on the streets, but they, for me, they were all connected. It was a, a period of uh, upheaval. And those were the people I met as I traveled around Britain in, the, in 1980, 87. Really, first generation or second generation Britons, Britons who were looking to find a place in society and having tremendous difficulty doing so because the society had really not, in a way, prepared for them. You know, the uh, parents came here as, uh, as workers. And I guess the expectation was that they would return back to the Caribbean or wherever they came from. Uh, and they, they wouldn't be a, a second, third generation to deal with. But there was this, you know, second, third generation and they, uh, there was no space for them. And, you know, when you have no, when a society doesn't uh, create sufficient space for its citizens, and those citizens will find ways of expressing themselves and rioting was uh, is quite a common way for the excluded, um, for the outsider communities to, to express themselves. Ferdinand's next radio series saw him travel to West Africa. And of course, he turned that into a book too. Back to Africa, A Journey, published in 1992. So I put up a project idea again to the BBC to send me around West Africa, six... Uh, 45-minute documentaries based on this trip around, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Senegal, Cameroon, Nigeria, Ghana, you know, and, and each country looking at different themes. So a sort of more um, elaborate version of the behind the front lines. And I, I don't think I was, I was driven by any a curiosity to meet new people. I, what I was driven by was a curiosity to explore certain themes as I as I travelled. So the theme of um, uh, repatriation, nations created in Liberia and Sierra Leone by uh, return people returned, uh, uh, the descendants uh, of of slaves of enslaved Africans who had returned to Africa. What kind of nation did they create in that part of West Africa? And something that was fascinating to me as a person of African descent, um, as a person of, uh, who descended from those who had been through the, the Middle Passage, what was it like to return to Africa, create these nations? Um, another example, in Senegal, I wanted to explore the idea of negritude. Oh, yes, that was so, a movement. There was a whole movement of negritude. That's that's right. So yes, yeah, yes. that incorporated film and and yeah, Yuzan Palsy talks about negritude. Yeah, and poetry uh, and so on. So you know, a hugely exciting moment in the evolution of black consciousness. Really, you know, people finding a voice. I I, I think highly problematic, and I think I tried to point that out in the book. But um, nonetheless, an important moment where people were trying to express what did it mean? Here they had been positioned within uh, European discourses as 
the uh, uh, you know the binary opposite of whiteness, and they came up with this notion of negritude, or you know that I think it was a single. So that's, so, you know, if intellect is Hellenic, with emotion is African. So, you know, if anybody else had said that, uh, if anybody said that today, they would be dismissed as an out and out racist. But in the 1930s and 40s, this was considered to be quite a, a revolutionary idea that somehow emotivity was uniquely African and worthy of celebration, promotion, and so and so forth. So, uh, Negritude in Senegal, Ghana, I wanted to look at the idea of Pan-Africanism. You know, you know, Kwame Nkrumah's idea of Pan-Africanism, which attracted so many people from uh, the Americas, you know, including W.B. Du Bois, who of course died in Ghana. And then in Nigeria, I can't remember what I wanted to do with Nigeria. So for me, it represented a return to Nigeria. I'd lived in the North for two years and so on. So, so those national unity in Nigeria, because you know, in Africa for me, it's just absolutely fascinating. Here you, you have these nations created um, mm. <laughs> at the Berlin Conference in 1888. And then the Africans had the, cha- the challenge, this huge challenge of creating, of building these nations in you know, post the 1950s. So that, for me, uh, was worthy of exploration. It was also about focus. You know, as I said, with Behind the Front Lines, I didn't, I didn't want to travel through some nebulous notion of Britain called Black Britain. I had quite a specific focus. And so the same with my West Africa journey. You know, I had these themes. Each country I landed in, I would talk to people around, uh, these, uh, explore these different themes. And it's interesting because the style that you've adopted is sort not travelogue, but it is that sense of arriving, observing. And yes, it's subjective because it's you who's doing the observing and you bring yourself to that. But historically, that style of writing has often been the white gaze as they've travelled around the world. And, and, you know, we talk about the colonial gaze. We talk about us seeing ourselves through their eyes. And so was it in your mind that you were in a way subverting that or was that just the way that you wanted to do it? My entire project, I have to say, my entire project as a writer, you know, as somebody who had been educated in the British educational system from a very young age uh, and who uh, became aware at some point, aware of the, the paucity of material, the dearth of, of representations of uh, the experiences of people like myself. And so my entire project was to make a contribution to correcting uh, that absence. Yeah? So, so here, this is how I see it. Here is uh, from my pen. Here, here are some works that will, you know, let's see how they, they stand at the test of time. And... Um, I think when I look around now at youngsters going through the educational system, I think they're very fortunate because there's an awful lot more. But, you know, in the 1960s into the 1970s, you really were in quite a, you know, where am I? Where am I? I'm just not there. And, you know, and so I'm going to make it my life project to contribute to to correct in that absence. But how... um, People of my generation got that history was through the music, through reggae music, and that kind of Rasta-influenced reggae music. You know, I can remember as a 
teenager in the 1970s being uh, introduced to the kind of Count Ozzy and the mystic revelation of Rastafari. <laughs> 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 the Ground Nation album, which talked about you know uh, 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 being carried away from Africa and and so on, that was how we got that history. Now, I think any sensible education system, you have a group of people who have experienced that in history, would include that on the curriculum, and in the whole culture would somehow or another reflect that, you know, whether it's in the museums, the schools, and, and so on and so forth, and reflect it in a critical way, but. Instead, there was silence, and there were guys living in, in a place like Liverpool, for example. People living in a place like Liverpool, where you know the city was steeped in the history of slave trading. Similarly, with um, with Bristol, I regret that I didn't get to Glasgow, part of you know the, the Scottish city, with with its very strong ties to Jamaica and to the Caribbean in general. But there, there are very few major seaports in this country that don't have some kind of, and in Europe, that don't have some kind of tie to the slave trade. Now, I, my own view is that this has to be represented, this has to be reflected in public memory. And there is nothing wrong with that. To get youngsters as critically reflecting on that past, to introduce it, them as early as possible is for me the way of to, to deal with that silence and silence. Alongside his two non-fiction works, Ferdinand wrote and published numerous short stories and three novels, Sleepless Summer, The Last Blues Dance and Duppy Conqueror. So you have just had, I know you've done other novels, but your novel Duppy Conqueror has just been republished by Hope Road Publishing. Listeners who haven't read it, what is that novel about? Gosh, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. What's the novel about? I'm not sure that I can tell you at this stage. The novel is about a man who um, is given the task of, kind of ridding his family of a curse uh, uh, by uh, travelling back to Africa. And so they're making a reconnection with Africa, taking, you know, yeah, that's that's. I think that's about as much I can, I can tell you. So you know, it's it's a sort of you know journey and return novel. He leaves the Caribbean, he arrives in Britain in the post-war during the Second World War. He works here and he gets involved in um, in the Pan African movement. You know, and Britain uh, um, had been from the from the beginning of the century a sort of centre of anti-colonial agitation. So he gets involved in that. He becomes a nightclub owner. Eventually, you know, African independence comes and he goes to Africa, spends some time there and is then deported for challenging the regime. Um, and he goes back to the Caribbean and has to confront the doppy that has been cursing his family. So it's not, you know, it's not a realist novel, an element of magic realism. Um, so does that answer your question? Yes, it absolutely so, does. Uh, it's a journey and return novel. Okay. Um, it's yeah. a magic realism. Um, mm. So uh, what was it like getting a publisher? So when you did it help that you were already a journalist or what, what was it like actually getting your book published? Oh, yes. I, I mean, it was it helped an awful lot because it meant I had uh, some sort of public, uh, some kind of profile. You'll notice I, I started being uh, published, this, uh, so 1988, yes. And that was largely because of my association with the BBC, with Radio 4. Um, you know, here's this huge outfit and 
I've given a sort of a slot, a couple of hours each each year. It wasn't a bad bad investment. There was also, it should be said, as part of um, just understanding the 1980s when I when I started. You know, on the back of the 1981 riots, there was a, a report called the, the Scarman report. report, and the Scarman report made its recommendation, its strongest recommendation, clearest recommendation, was to create a black middle class. Yes, this was the inclusion, ultra HD inclusion. Yeah. So if you were uh, uh, halfway educated, knocking around, looking for work, you know, if you had, as I did, I, I, had, I studied up to a master's level, there were opportunities. And uh, I was well placed to take advantage of those opportunities in um, uh, in relation to uh, to the media. So I got work in print journalism, and then say so had a little uh, what I thought was just a, a, a casual encounter with broadcasting, which went on for a couple of more years. And say so that public profile meant that um, I wasn't a bad investment from a publisher's uh, um, uh, point of view. When you think about the publishing industry, do you think that it has actually changed much? And do you see a mirror of the publishing industry in broadcasting? So what you're saying around the time of Scarman, there was a willingness, people were open in a way. Um, did they remain open or do you think things closed? Well, broadcasting was more open because the project of building this, creating this black middle class was state-driven. Yeah, so, so, so it was a public sector uh, that drove it. Publishing is a, a private concern, and they're always slow because, of course, of course what matters in publishing or any private concern is, um, is profit. And there is, I, as soon as the interest, the spotlight, if you like, in black um, issues, racial issues, uh, as soon as that spotlight dims, then publishing will lose its interest. Yes. As long as guys, are, you know, kids are writing on the streets and so on, yeah, then you know, the publishers are going to be interested. Um, but then the doors, as you imply, the doors close. So I would say to any person um, wanting to enter publishing at the moment, that is a good moment because there's a great deal of interest post, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. So get on it. So, okay, so let's let's ask about what are your highlights? Because you've done lots of different things. You've done the fiction, you've done the non-fiction, you've done the journalism, you've done broadcasting. What would you, what are you most proud of? Gosh, that's, a, that's, that's quite difficult. I'm, I think I'm, I'm proud of that I've made a contribution, you know? That's what I'm, I'm proud of, that, you know, I, I look around at uh, the, just the number of writers of African descent that, uh, who are now, you know, producing works. And, and it seems like such a vibrant literary space out there for, for black writers. And it's great that you know, people have come to, to recognize that, you know, in this age, in this age of visual culture, in this age of you know the, the screen and so on, that the book matters, and, and that the book has tremendous potential for for self expression. Could it be we've come right to the end? So soon. The end. The end. The end, y'all. But yeah, we're shutting it down. We're shutting it down. The brilliant Ferdinand Dennis was nominated for respect due by Gary Young. 
author, broadcaster, journalist and sociology professor at the University of Manchester. Respect You is presented by me, Salmon Wasesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. You can find out more at www.museumofcolour.org.uk. The music you have heard in this series is from Soweto Kinch's prize-winning album, Conversations with the Unseen. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms. Respect You is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Thank you for listening. Make you think you're in a cave and your shadow can speak. Cool.